Hannah Staver, and this is Ohio Politics Explained, a podcast where you give us 15 minutes and we give you all the news you need to sound smart and impress your friends when you go out this weekend. Hi, I'm Laura Bischoff. I cover politics and state government for the USA Today Network Ohio Bureau. Ohio is in the middle of the biggest public corruption case in state history. It involves a web of dark money, an Ohio-based Fortune 500 company, Four and a half million consumers and some top politicos. The case has already taken some very dramatic turns. Arrests, guilty pleas, FBI searches, executive firings, and the suicide of one defendant. It's a lot. In this special episode of Ohio Politics Explained, we'll walk you through the basics of utilities and utility regulation. I know it sounds dull, but stick with me. Joining me is Todd Snitchler, a Republican who served in the Ohio House and later served as chair of the Public Utilities Commission of Ohio from 2011 to 2014. He's now the CEO of Electric Power Supply Association. Welcome and thanks for joining me, Todd. Thanks, Laura. I appreciate the invitation. Hey, let's let's start with some basics. What is House Bill 6 and why should Ohioans care? House Bill 6 was a significant piece of legislation, the primary driver, of course, that is bringing us to this conversation was around a nuclear subsidy. And it was payments that were intended to keep two nuclear units owned by First Energy Solutions, now Energy Harbor, operational. The claim being made as part of the legislative process was that those nuclear plants needed money in order to be able to continue to operate. Otherwise, they were going to close down. That was subject to a lot of debate and very strong differences of opinion about just how profitable those plants may have been. And so as a result, there was a bill drafted that would have guaranteed those plants hundreds of millions of dollars over the course of, I think it ended up being seven years in the final version of the bill. That is what drove the entire discussion around the bill. There are other pieces that included a subsidy for the Ohio Valley Electric Corporation or OVEC, which are two coal plants, one that's in Ohio, one that's in Indiana. And there were some other provisions that were also included as part of the bill. But that nuclear subsidy or the bailout, as it was referred to, folks may remember that, was really the crux of how we got to this conversation. And let's be clear, this subsidy was going to be paid by four and a half million consumers across the state on their monthly electric bills. That's correct. Okay, so that's a good reason to care. Can you tell me, like, what is the Public Utilities Commission of Ohio and how does it impact everyday Ohioans? Sure, that's a great question. The commission is the regulatory agency that oversees rate making and enforcement for really five main areas, electric utilities, gas utilities, telecommunication, transportation, and water. This, of course, is an electric case. And so what the commission's role is designed to do is to monitor and regulate rates on the part of monopoly utilities, which First Energy is, uh, AEP is in the electric side, uh, Dayton Power and Light, now AES, and then Duke in the Cincinnati area. So those entities come to the commission and they ask for certain rates to be approved. The commission goes through a formal rate-making process where parties intervene, participate in the case. It's a quasi-judicial type function. And in the end, it's the commission's role to determine what is a just and reasonable rate that consumers will be charged, what the utility will be able to earn on the dollars that they invest in order to keep the system operational. And there's not one right answer for that. There's a range of what's reasonable, but it's really the commission's job to act as the market would if there was competition. And so it's the way to try to ensure that utilities are not charging customers way too much or spending so little that the system becomes unreliable and customers can't actually get service. It's trying to find that zone where it hits the the Goldilocks phenomenon, not too much, not too little, just right. 
So you served as the chairman of the PUCO. Does the chairman have more power and influence over policy? And if so, how? The chairman sets the agenda in many ways. Um, Cases have to come through the process, to be sure. And they come through regardless of who's in the chair and who the other commissioners are. But the chair does have a bit of a different role, first of which they are the administrator for the entire agency. So all staffing and procedural administrative kind of things flow through the chairman, generally speaking. But when it comes to how the commission will operate when you're looking at how you may want to approach an issue, or if there's a piece of legislation and the General Assembly asks the commission for their opinion on a certain bill, the chairman speaks for the commission. Now, there's often consultation with other commissioners, and certainly commission staff are the technical experts, and they are involved in the process. But the chair is really the voice of the commission, and while appointed by the nominating council and ultimately selected by the governor, that that individual, he or she, is the voice of the commission. And then, like, right out of the gate, once um, Governor DeWine took office, there was an opening for the chair, and he ultimately selected Sam Randazzo. Who is Randazzo, and how did he how did he get that job? Well, former Chair Randazzo is a longtime energy expert in Ohio. If you work in this space for any time at all, you knew who Sam was. He was a very respected attorney. He was one who was involved in virtually every aspect of energy policy in Ohio, both natural gas and electric principally. And so he represented industrial energy users almost exclusively. So those are your large industrial customers who often participate in those rate cases that I mentioned a moment ago. And so as a part of that they try to shape the outcome of the decision, ultimately what the order of the commission will look like in order to make sure that they're not charged so much that they're, they can't compete in Ohio or other jurisdictions or that their rates are so low that they're not going to have reliable service. So they're always trying to find the best deal for them. And that's who Sam represented on the industrial side of things. So, I mean, if he, he was an expert and well, well regarded, to so sure. um, certainly That sounds like an appointment to PUC chair that makes sense. On paper, it made all the sense in the world. I mean, if you look at the requirements to be appointed a commissioner, there are a handful of very broad ones. And oftentimes having industry experience is helpful. This is not kind of the thing that everybody knows a little bit about. It's very specialized. And so having some experience before you get into the commission, whether you're a commissioner or the chair, is always helpful. Okay, so on paper it made sense. Did it not make sense? Or it only doesn't make sense now looking back? As you look back, uh, the reporting that you and others have done have certainly uh, raised some questions that would have perhaps caused people considering a nomination to ask some further questions. And it certainly doesn't appear that that took place. Are you referring to the fact that... uh you know, it's come out in the deferred prosecution agreement that First Energy signed a year ago or signed in July of uh, 2021 that um, it paid out uh, $4.33 million to Sam Randazzo's firm just days before he was uh, he put his hat in the ring for the job. That's certainly one of the things that I think would raise questions. There's also been reporting about uh, a folder that was given to the governor's office that, you know, was put out by someone. I don't know that we ever saw who that actually was, but raised some questions that they suggested that the governor's office ought to ask. And it appears that those questions weren't asked or they were asked and they were satisfied with the answers. I don't know the how that ultimately played out. Right. I mean, I should say also that Sam Randazzo has um, stated publicly that he has done nothing wrong. That's correct. And he resigned after the uh, FBI searched his condo. And there was also a disclosure about this payment um, to the Securities and Exchange Commission. So that's that's where we are right now. Correct. 
But let's switch gears. Like, explain to me what is First Energy and what is Energy Harbor and how do the two fit together? Sure. First Energy is one of the largest utilities, certainly in Ohio, and one of the largest utilities in the country. They have multiple operating utilities across four jurisdictions, I think. And so they have millions of customers that receive power across their transmission and distribution network. So that's the wires. So the big wires that carry power long distances all the way down to the wires that are connected to your house that when you click your light switch on, that's part of their business. Previously, they were also, they had an unregulated generation affiliate, which is a really complicated way of saying they own power plants, but they weren't regulated by the commission. And so that part of their business got to be very volatile and they wanted to get out of that business. And that included those assets, the two nuclear units that we were talking about a moment ago. And so they decided they were going to get out of the generation business and be a more traditional wires only utility. They ultimately spun First Energy Solutions, which was that unregulated affiliate off And then Energy Harbor is the entity that basically took over First Energy Solutions assets. And First Energy Solutions went into bankruptcy. Correct. Got reorganized and came out as Energy Harbor. That's correct. So you represented the Akron area while in the Ohio House. What does First Energy mean to that area? How important is that company? Well, certainly, if you look at First Energy as a corporate citizen in Akron, there are thousands of employees in their downtown office, and there are also employees out in their uh, campus that was on the um, west side of town, if memory serves me correctly. But they're also very invested in the local communities. They contribute a lot of money. They donate to the Little League and all the things that good corporate citizens do, First Energy did a lot of. The interesting part of that is that part of that becomes it's a bit of a lever that is often used when trying to extract additional uh, concessions from your regulator or from others, because if there's the threat of a departure of a corporate headquarters of a Fortune 500 company, that's a major deal. And nobody wants that to happen on their watch. And so the question becomes, is that a real threat or is that just something that we're saying in order to leverage people to give you more of what you want? Now, First Energy is cooperating with uh, federal prosecutors in this whole case um, and has said that it's uh, it's turned over a new leaf, a, a new culture. What do you see happening at that company now? Well, certainly there have been some changes uh, as a result of some changes on the board. There's some new leaders that are involved in the organization. I would say that I still see what looks like an awful lot of slow walking of information coming out of the organization. Uh, There was, of course, everything that was disclosed as part of the deferred prosecution agreement, but there have been multiple subsequent litigation filings that involve, you know, shareholder derivative suits and all kinds of other things. And there's been a concerted effort not to disclose until absolutely required to do so. I know the Ohio Consumers Council is also pursuing things and having to, it's like pulling teeth to get information out where from the the rhetoric, if we're turning over a new leaf and we want to get this all behind us, you would think you would want to disclose it as quickly as possible, turn over everything you've got and be done with it as opposed to walking or slow walking information out because it might not be helpful. You know, back in 2019, I was, I was covering the House Bill 6 rollout, um, I think you were you were in some of those hearings. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what did you think of the bill and all the money getting poured into, you know, the effort to get it passed and then defended against a referendum? 
Well, it was unprecedented. And in full disclosure, I testified against House Bill 6 for the American Petroleum Institute, where I was employed at the time. Uh, so I was here. I was observing and watching what was happening. And it was remarkable uh, that this significant piece of legislation was getting moved through in really very rapid order and ultimately was passed. Uh, and then it moved through the Senate quickly and the governor signed it. The ink was barely dry and Governor DeWine signed that bill on his desk. It seemed like within hours of its passage, which is a little unusual. But the referendum situation really was completely unprecedented. Ohio has a referendum statute. You're allowed to do it if you get enough signatures. And the effort to collect signatures was put in place fairly quickly. But the anti-referendum effort was just unbelievable in the dollars that were spent, the things that were happening that didn't make sense until the deferred prosecution agreement came out. And you said, oh, that's where all the money would come from to buy off uh, signature gatherers or in order for folks to see why, why are these TV commercials on? Who's running a TV commercial before there's even signatures on a referendum? Normally, that would be part of the campaign. But all this was done ahead of time. It, they were very uh, caustic ads, you know, painting it as a, the Chinese were taking over the American electric grid. Very, very strong stuff that was way out of the norm for a referendum type situation, certainly at this stage of the process. Yeah, it was absolutely a very fierce counter campaign to a campaign that, as you said, wasn't even on the ballot yet. Correct. So, you know, backers of House Bill 6 say it was all about keeping carbon neutral power um, as part of the energy mix. What do you say to that? I think that's uh, a convenient uh, framing of the issue. At the end of the day, you have to look at these plants in more than a one year cycle. If you look at where those plants are today with the price of natural gas, what it is, those those plants are making money hand over fist. And nobody's guaranteed a profit. Certainly, if you're an unregulated affiliate or you're a competitive entity, you make money when you can. And if you lose money for a year or two, that's part of how the process works. And this bill was intended to completely mitigate the downside risk and only provide upside benefit to the owners of those nuclear units. What is your assessment to how the PUCO responded to this whole scandal after the arrests of Larry Householder and and the others, and then also following the um, deferred prosecution agreement? Well, it won't shock you that I was surprised that the pace of engagement was incredibly slow. Uh, This is one of the situations where you have probably your largest or second largest utility that you regulate is involved in a significant federal scandal. And there seemed to be a conspicuous lack of urgency to weigh in and figure out, did is there something we should or should have done or should be doing? So that surprised me to some degree, uh, because you would think that you would want to be very proactive in making sure that consumers had confidence that you were you know, doing the right things. And again, full disclosure, I signed a letter along with a couple of other former commissioners early on saying that the charter for First Energy ought to be on the table. They ought to have that put as an option where they could revoke the charter because monopoly utilities are not guaranteed the franchise. It can be revoked and awarded to another utility that could run it. And so I signed a letter saying that that ought to be on the table, given the scope of the just unbelievable conduct that was admitted to as part of that deferred prosecution agreement. Well, I mean, it's been a year since that deferred prosecution agreement came out. So how is the PUCO responding to the scandal now? I, like you, I can only see what they say publicly, and that is that they are trying not to interfere with the U.S. attorneys, and they have asked them not to overly get engaged for fear of damaging the prosecution. I have to take them at their word uh, that that is what the U.S. attorney has asked them to do. But it certainly looks to me that there are some things outside of the scope of the 
criminal case that could be done. And I know that our letter uh, recommended some of those, but management audit and some other things that appear to have been done almost as part of the first energy side of the equations where they looked at board members and management issues and they're going through that process. And that seems to be a response as much to Wall Street concerns as it is to prosecution now that they have signed their deferred prosecution agreement. And if they cooperate, they in effect are, this is essentially settled for them. Okay, let's keep this at a, at a real high level. Sure. If you could change anything about utility regulation in Ohio, like you get your magic wand, what changes would you make? That's a, that's a broad question. I would say that Ohio should have completed the job when we looked at restructuring, and this was started in 1999, but there was a 10-year period in the, in, in the meantime where there were rate caps that were put into place, and then there were restrictions about shopping, and then ultimately... And, and frankly, when I was the chair, we really tried to push to open that up and move companies into a posture that allowed them to divest their generation and have customers really have the opportunity to shop. And customers have saved millions and millions of dollars as a result of that. So I, I feel good about that. But we didn't go far enough and eliminate the provider of last resort. So utilities can still be your generation provider in Ohio. And that makes it easy for consumers to just be left with their utility. And that hasn't always been, I think, a great benefit. I think we would have benefited from doing the full restructuring and have every customer shop, and then they'd be in control of their utility spend as opposed to not having the ability to do that. If you were going to give some advice to uh, PUCO Chair French right now on House Bill 6, what would it be? It's a fair question, but I try not to tell my successors what they ought or ought not to do. I was in that chair and I received plenty of unsolicited advice and it was not always helpful. So I'm going to decline to answer that one. Okay. Anything else you'd like to add? I think it's important for Ohio citizens to pay attention to this case for a couple of reasons. One, it certainly affirms or causes questions about how much trust they should have in their government. And I think generally they should have plenty of trust. But this is a significant issue that doesn't appear to have captured the public's interest for some reason. And I find that surprising. And on the second part, I think that it's this is a warning that you need to pay attention to what is happening at the state level in politics. It's not just a federal question, but engagement at the local and the state level is how you avoid having your state be on the front page of the paper for having the largest scandal this side of Illinois in the last 50 years. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Laura. Ohio Politics Explained is brought to you by the USA Today Network Ohio Bureau. You can find us on Twitter at Ohio Explained. And if you want to learn more about any of the topics we covered this week, check us out online at any of the newspapers in our network, like portclintonnewsherald.com. 